0: Your Bible to Acts chapter 22, we left off in verse 30. Acts 22, verse 30. Sometimes the chapters don't break where the thought breaks, so Kent left off in verse 29, and we'll pick up in verse 30. This chapter really deals with Paul having a dark night of the soul, a difficult challenging time. He'd felt the Holy Spirit impress upon his heart to go to Jerusalem. There was many that were in opposition to this vision. Those that were saying, "Hey, you're not supposed to go to Jerusalem." He was convinced that the Spirit wanted him to travel to Jerusalem. Coming to Jerusalem, he quickly gets arrested. He requests in chapter 2 to speak in front of the angry mob. In chapter 23 now, he's going to speak in front of the Jewish leadership. And in the midst of this, doubt comes into his soul. Was I really right? Was this the course that I was supposed to go on? And many times that happens in our lives as well. God puts us on a certain path and a certain direction. And then we come to a crisis, a difficulty. And we wonder, is this the path that God has? Did I hear God right? Is this effort really worth putting in? And the Lord speaks to us in those seasons and reminds us of his presence. So I think it's gonna be applicable for some tonight because it's right where you're at. You're in the middle of the dark night of the soul. And then for others of you, you're having just a wonderful season. It's springtime of the soul. Just take note because it will come. You, you will have those dark nights and this section of scripture will hopefully be an encouragement to you. So let's pray together. Father, we come just thankful that we're your sons, that we're your daughters. Lord, as we sang of your character tonight, that you're slow to anger and rich in mercy, you're our dad, you're our father. We thank you for who you are. We're also thankful for eternal life. We're thankful that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We rejoice in that free gift of salvation God, I pray that you would confirm your work and your direction in our lives and that we would stay the course in the things that you have called us to. Holy Spirit, have your way. Would you bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. So verse 30 of chapter 22, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all of the council to appear And brought Paul down and set him before them. So now verse 1 of chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. So now he's speaking in front of a Jewish audience, the Jewish council. And he says, guys, I've lived in a good conscience before God. And this is a great place to be. It's not that the apostle Paul was perfect. It's that he didn't have this dark secret in his life, this unconfessed sin, this skeleton in the closet, and he could say, I'm living in good conscience before the Lord. Now, it has been said the only way to have a good conscience is a bad memory, <laughs> but that's not absolutely true, is it? There's another way to have a good conscience, and that's the blood of Jesus, to have confessed our sin, to forsake our sin, to allow Jesus to wash our conscience clean. I think tonight as we examine our hearts, we know that if our conscience is clean before the Lord, and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, and there's a little bit of heart and life work to get to that place of saying, my conscience is good before God. But that's where we want to live. That's the place that we want to be in. And Paul's able to attest to that. In verse 2, And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Ananias, the high priest, didn't like this response. So he says, go ahead and smack Paul in the mouth. He doesn't think that Paul's living in good conscience because he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Paul's message was. It wasn't like the high priest is saying, okay, Paul, here's your life of sin. Here's your rebellion. No, it was because of Paul's message for Christ. And we see Paul's fiery spirit in verse 3. If you doubted that at all, as you've studied the New Testament, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. (laughs) For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? A whitewashed wall, a whitewashed tomb. What he's calling him is a bag of bones. Just outside of Jerusalem, they would whitewash the tombs. They would whitewash the walls of the cemetery so that no one would accidentally touch a tomb because then, according to their law, you would become unclean. So he's saying, you're a bag of bones. You're, 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 a, you're a dead man spiritually, even though you're alive physically. And then he says, you struck me contrary to the law. You claim to be a follower of the law, but the law calls For justice, the mouth of two or three witnesses, Deuteronomy chapter 25. and verse 4, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priests? Are you going to treat the high priest this way? Then Paul said, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So possibly bad eyesight. Some Bible scholars look at Paul's thorn in the flesh that he may have had bad eyesight. And so he didn't see that he was speaking to the high priest, possibly just an oversight. But one of the things is he did not intend to hit the high priest. He's claiming here and saying, or excuse me, Paul didn't intend to speak this way of the high priest. He didn't see that this was the high priest. He said, if I would have known that this is the high priest, then I wouldn't have spoke this way to him. And he quotes from the law. Exodus 22, verse 28 says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Sometimes difficult to do, isn't it? But that respect for the position that God gives. In verse six, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other's Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So he perceives that there is a divided crowd and he's going to play off of this. Some are Pharisees, some are Sadducees. These are two different sects inside of Judaism. Both set apart to fulfill the law and they intended good. They started off good. We want to fulfill God's word perfectly, but then they moved to to legalism. But what separated the two groups is the Sadducees don't believe in the supernatural at all. They wouldn't believe in angels. They wouldn't believe in demons. And most importantly, they wouldn't believe in the resurrection. So Paul obviously believes in the resurrection, and he's going to bring that up. He also brings up his past, and he says, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning hope and resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. He says, Guys, I know where you're coming from. I think in a lot of ways, this was Paul's lifelong dream to minister to these group. These are his people. This is where he came from. This is like going back to a group of unbelievers that you've prayed for, that you've longed for, and now the moment has come that you get to share with them. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, maybe it's co-workers. Paul had such a heart for the nation of Israel that he said he was willing to be accursed for their salvation. He's saying, I'm willing to go to hell so that they could come to know Christ as their Savior. A personal frustration in his life was that God used him more with the Gentiles than the Jews, because his heart was for the Jewish people. He says, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee. Philippians chapter 3 is a great cross-reference of Paul saying, I laid all of that aside, and I considered it to be rubbish, literally dung, in order for the knowledge of Christ. He laid aside legalism. He laid aside religion for a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says, and he brings up the resurrection, he says, concerning hope and the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. Specifically, whose resurrection? Jesus. I'm being judged for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that I put in the resurrection of Christ. You will divide yourself from the rest of humanity based on what you believe on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. There's a lot of people that believe in Christ, but they don't believe that he was God. They don't believe that he died for sin. They especially don't believe that he rose from the dead. But we're able to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's historically accurate. It adds up, the evidence points to this historical event that took place. So Paul's set apart by the resurrection, we're set apart by the resurrection. If you want to study that in more detail, study 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 7, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Paul intentionally brings up the resurrection because he knows that the audience is divided on this. Notice what takes place in the next few verses. Verse eight, for Sadducees say that there's no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry and the scribes of the Pharisees partly arose and protested saying, we find no fault in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let's not fight against God. So some of the Pharisees are like, yeah, let's hear this guy out. They believe in the supernatural. Paul was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. But verse 10, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So the tension gets so violent that they start pulling on Paul. No, let's hear him. And the Sadducees are like, No, let's put him to death. This guy's a heretic. It's heresy. He's a false teacher. And the commander, who is a Roman, is looking and going, My job's to keep the peace in Jerusalem. I better get this guy out of here. He's going to become lunch meat. They're just going to rip him to shreds. Now begin to think about what this is like for Paul. We know from Scripture in verse 11 it says, But the following night, So Paul seems to really be wrestling with these things. His sermon didn't even get off the ground. It crashed and burned. He says one simple sentence, I'm being judged for my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And they're like (laughs) pulling them apart. And here comes the Roman commander. And he's wrestling going, what in the world was that all about? Ever been there? God, I thought you called me to this. I thought you told me to invest in this way. We've poured ourselves out. And here, it didn't go very well. It kind of blew up in in my face. And maybe in the back of his mind, he hears the voice of Agabus. Remember Agabus? said, can I borrow your belt? And wrapped up his hands in Paul's belt and says, whoever's belt this is is going to be bound. The church then interpreted that as you're not supposed to go to Jerusalem. But he was convinced, Paul was convinced, that he was to go to Jerusalem. Now he's beginning to probably doubt all of that. And we're gonna see that things are even gonna escalate from here. His life is on the line. Doubt, fear, anxiety, worry, it's all there. But the following night, the Lord stood by him. Now Jesus said that he would never leave us or forsake us, true? True? That's his declaration, his promise. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So God was always with Paul. But I believe that God in this moment allowed Paul to feel his presence in a greater way. The Lord stood by Paul. It's the message of God saying, look, Paul, I'm with you. You're in the right direction. Keep going. This is exactly what I have for you. The Lord stood by with him. The Lord made his presence known. And this is what we need in the dark night of the soul more than anything else. I'm reminded of when the disciples were on the storm, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus reveals his presence. One time Jesus is sleeping in the boat. They're waking him up. Jesus, we need you to be awake in this situation. Another time Jesus is walking on the waves. When they realize it's Christ, they call out to him. But if you're in difficulty, if I'm in difficulty, which we may be, if not, we will be, we need to cry out and say, God, I need to know your presence. I know you're with me. I know your promise that you'll never leave me or forsake me. But would you reveal your presence to me in the midst of of this difficulty? We don't like these crises in the night. We don't enjoy it when we lose sleep. We don't enjoy it when we wake up at two in the morning. A couple things that practically I love life, in life the most, is sleep and coffee. I love a good night's sleep, and I love a a cup of coffee. But yet, when we're in these crises, isn't it amazing how the Lord does meet us in those night seasons, and those times of of difficulty? The Lord's with you. May he reveal his presence to you. He's with you. Right where you're at tonight, and what you're going through, where you're seated. He knew where you would sit. He knows what you're thinking about. He knows the words that you're gonna speak. He stands with you. If he stood for you on the cross and he stood for me on the cross, he's never gonna forsake us. He gave his back for us to promise us that he's never gonna turn his back on us. Sometimes we have to lay hold of it by faith. Sometimes the Lord allows us to feel his presence, but the Lord, he stood by him. He stood by him. And this is what God said. Be of good cheer. Likely story, (laughs) You know, easy for you to say, Jesus, be of good cheer. Right now, I just got tore up. You know, these guys are about ready to kill me. I'm going to get news here tomorrow morning that 40 guys have made a vow that they're not going to eat or drink until they kill me, and you're telling me to be of good cheer. A lot of times, joy is a response to who God is and his promises, not our circumstances. True? God will come to us in the midst of financial difficulty and he'll say, be of good cheer. He'll come to us in the midst of relational challenge and say, be of good cheer. He'll come to us in the midst of bad news physically and he'll say, be of good cheer. Or we'll say, I don't know what set of circumstances you're looking at because the set of circumstances I'm looking at don't look very cheerful right now. And the reason why he's to be of good cheer is because Christ is with him And because of the promised future. Notice in the next few verses or the next few statements. Paul, for as you have testified me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So first and foremost, Paul was right in going to Jerusalem. Jesus says, you have testified of me in Jerusalem. Paul needed to hear that encouragement. What are other believers' perspective of what you're doing? That's not what's first and foremost. What's your own perspective of what you're doing? That's not the first factor, is it? It's what the what does the Lord think? What does the Lord say? And is the Lord encouraging you, saying you've testified of me, you've walked on the path that I've wanted you to walk, you were obedient. Now that may not be the message that God gives to you tonight. Maybe you can't say I've been walking with the Lord. I. I can't, I haven't been following the Lord. Well, good news, tonight you can start walking with him. But for some of you, you have been obedient. You've done what God has wanted you to do, but yet you're holding on to false guilt. And first, there's this encouragement from God. And he says, you have testified of me in Jerusalem, Paul. You've done exactly what I wanted you to do. God only asks for obedience. He doesn't promise always a great outcome from our perspective, Paul's being obedient, but there's not this amazing outcome at this point while he's in Jerusalem. Are you following me? So this is in that encouragement from the Lord. I'm reading Jeremiah right now in my devotions. It's been rich for me because Jeremiah was the faithful prophet with no fruit. We don't see one person repenting at the message that Jeremiah gave, but he continued in faithfulness. The results are all, not always an indicator of the faithfulness. That's the first thing, that encouragement. You've testified me of Jerusalem. And then it says, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You know, I'm not done with you. I've got a future for you. You're gonna go to Rome and you're gonna testify to me in Rome. We do know from church history that Rome became the place of Paul's death where he was martyred, where he wrote his epistle, 2 Timothy, to his young disciple, his young protege, God knew the end that Paul was going to have, but Jerusalem wasn't it. He was going to go on to Rome. God numbers our days, doesn't he? He knows when our end is going to be. Jeremiah 29, 11, it's one of my favorite verses, says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, that of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Part of the reason we can be of good cheer in the dark night of the soul, is because Christ is with us. Christ encourages us, and then Christ has a certain future for us. He's got a plan. In spite of our mistakes, other people's mistakes, the nature of the world, he rules and reigns over everything, and he's got a Rome in mind for you. He's got a Rome in mind for me, and he wants us to keep going, and to keep pursuing, and to not give up on the things that the Lord has told us. The very core of what God is telling Paul is, you're on the right track, I'm with you, keep going. And I want you to turn to James chapter 1 and look at this promise that God gives us in James chapter 1. So, a little bit to our right... James is right after Hebrews, right before Peter. If you've gone to Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far. So. James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Another one of those counterintuitive be of good cheer. Be cheerful, be joyful, because you're in various trials. Don't you like how Scripture does that? Various trials, because it's hard to define trials. They're so vast, they're so varied, they're so different. And So when you fall into various trials, be joyful. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Trials have a way of revealing the status of our faith. There's no other way to know. If, if we don't test it by trial, we won't have adequate information. So the trial's going to test our faith, but it's also going to produce patience, which is endurance. So if you're going through a trial, know that it's going to reveal the status of your faith, but it's also going to produce endurance if you allow it to. Verse 4. But let patience, let endurance, have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Can't you hear this being applicable to Paul as he's in the dark night of the soul? Hey, Paul, be of good cheer. Various trials... It's testing your faith. It's going to produce endurance in you. A greater level of endurance. If you allow it, let let endurance have its perfect work. Be complete, lacking nothing. Now here's the promise, verse five. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. Paul asked God if he should go to Jerusalem and God said yes. I want you to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now what's Paul's job to do? He's to trust that wisdom. He's to trust that God hasn't made a mistake. So ask for wisdom. God gives it generously. He gives it overflowing without reproach. He's not a respecter of persons. But verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So God's condition for receiving the wisdom is we would receive it in faith. In those difficulties, in that time of adversity, in the dark night of the soul, hold on to what God has given you. Now it goes on to say and tells us, if not, we're like a wave in the sea tossed to and fro. Not even a person in the sea. We're like the wave. The wave is completely unstable. The wave has no control So if Paul doubts the wisdom that God has given to him, he's going to become like this wave tossed in the wind. verse 7, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So we cut ourselves off from receiving wisdom from God. We're double-minded, meaning we're going back and forth. We're going, well, God told me to go to Jerusalem Now I'm doubting it. God told me, now I'm doubting it. And the result is then we're unstable in all of our ways. So let me attempt to speak to our hearts for just a moment before we we move on. God's word's timely. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This has been timely for me this week. I've been challenged with this section of scripture to say, am I going to trust wisdom that I know that God has given to me or am I going to doubt it? And Paul needed that encouragement that God was with him, stay the course, keep walking in wisdom, keep enduring, I've got a future for you. And maybe that fits for you tonight. You're going, I know that the Lord has shown me this. I was asking for wisdom in this situation and he spoke, now things are getting difficult and I'm doubting it, don't doubt it. Christ is with you. He's got to roam for you. Keep going. Keep pressing on. Hold on to that wisdom. And maybe you, like me, can look back at other times in your life when you held on to God's wisdom in the midst of a storm and see how it paid off. And you go, you know what? I'm so thankful that I held on to what the Lord had showed me and it did pay off. And I can trust God again in the midst of the season. And here's a silver lining that I find a lot of encouragement in, is if Paul needed this, how much more so do we need this? This is the great apostle Paul. This is a man of great faith, but he had a dark night of the soul where he was confused and he was wondering, and God in his love for Paul came to him and just allowed his presence to be known in Paul's life. He said, Paul, you're on the right track. Keep going. If you're on the wrong track, get on the right track. But if you're on the right track," you're in trying to walk in the wisdom that God has given you, keep going. He's got a future for you. Keep headed towards that personal roam that the Lord has put upon your heart. In verse 12 of Acts 23, And when it was day, some of the Jews band together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Sometimes when we think we've heard from God, we then assume that the opposition will go away. Well, God spoke to me last night, and he encouraged me so much. I was at Wednesday night Bible study, and the Lord really met me. Does that mean there's going to be no opposition Thursday morning? Oh, I only wish. That would be great, wouldn't it? So for Paul, he's going to have to hold on to this by faith, because 40 dudes are saying, I'm not going to eat or drink till I kill Paul. Now, that's always kind of fascinated me a little bit, because... If I were trying to kill somebody, which I'm not, I'm not. You can thank the Lord for that, but I don't have any plans of murdering somebody. I would definitely eat and drink because it seems like it would take a lot of energy to kill somebody, right? So these guys are going to have all of this effort to kill Paul, but they're saying we're not going to eat or drink, but they're showing their passion and their dedication to see Paul's death in verse 13. Now there was more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. So it's growing. Now there's more than 40. Then they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. So they give this message to their spiritual leaders, their chief priests and their elders. Verse 15, now you therefore together with the council suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So now they're in conspiracy with the chief priest and the council, saying, ask for Paul to come to us again, and while he's on the road, we're going to kill him, and we're going to knock him off. Man, religion is a dangerous business. These guys sound more like the mafia than the spiritual leaders of Israel, huh? Verse 16, So when Paul's sister's son heard of the ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul's sister's son, his nephew, hears of this conspiracy and he goes to tell Paul. Many times in scripture, we see God working in a very natural way that's supernatural. Remember Esther and how God worked in that whole complete story. And it came to that point when Mordecai was wanting to be killed by Haman. And the king, King Xerxes, he couldn't sleep. And he called for the annals, the history books. That's a good thing to read when you can't sleep. He says, Can I have some cookies and some milk? And just get me the minutes from the old board meetings. Get, get, out, the, get out the annals. And starts reading that Mordecai had saved his life. Yet there was nothing done to recognize Mordecai. So here comes Haman at the beginning of a new day. The king, having read the history books, goes, you know, I want you to, to honor Mordecai. And all of that started with what? A king who couldn't sleep. Was that coincidence or God's hand? That's God's hand. And right here, you can look at Acts 23 and you can go, oh, this is coincidence that Paul's nephew heard of this conspiracy to kill Paul. But we know it's God's hand. It's God fulfilling the promise that Paul's going to live. Jerusalem's not going to be his death. He is going to go to Rome. Look for God's hand supernaturally in the natural. Look for him to work. Look for him to put together the pieces. Maybe you're reading a devotional. Maybe you're reading in a section of scripture. And then all of a sudden you turn on the radio and you hear a pastor teaching on that same section of scripture. The other day, I was doing a devotional with the girls and it was all about good soil and the seed. And then those two days, I happened to be working in my yard with soil. And I'm like, okay, God's trying to get my attention. There's no coincidences, are there? God's hand is in this. In verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he's a young man. We don't know exactly his age maybe in his teenage years. And Paul goes to the centurion and says, take him to the very commander. What is the likelihood that an unnamed young man is gonna get an appointment with the commander? Notice what God does. Verse 18, so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. We know that Paul's not your average prisoner and I think when the commander goes, you know what? Paul sent this guy to me. There's all this uproar about Paul and ultimately seeing God's hand upon Paul. He's like, okay, I'm gonna hear what this kid has to say what this teenager, this young man has to say, verse 19. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? So now they get this one-on-one meeting with, with the commander, this private meeting In verse 20. And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath, that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from him. Let's it all out. The cat's out of the bag. So the commander let the young man depart, And the commander and commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. Wouldn't it be pretty cool to be recruited by God into secret service? I mean, this may be the first recording of a secret servant agent right there. Verse 23, and he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. This is radical. He gets two centurions, two officers, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen. We're up to 270. Then 200 spearmen. We're up to 470 for one prisoner, the apostle Paul. Who's Paul to this guy? A nobody. But who's Paul to the Lord? Everybody. God's hands upon Paul. God's showing Paul there's all this opposition, but my hands upon you, Paul. These are my promises that I've given to you. This is the safety that I have put around you. And they make an escape at the third hour of the night. They make the midnight escape to to go. On verse 24, And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Caesarea is over on the coast. Jerusalem's a little bit inland. And he wrote in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greeting, This man was seized by the Jews about to be killed by them, coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council. I found out that he was accused concerning the question of the law, but had, no, had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I set him immediately to go. And I also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him farewell. Remember when Paul got saved, the Lord showed him that he was gonna be a witness to Jews, to Gentiles, and to rulers. And we see God fulfilling that last portion of his call. God was gonna bring the apostle Paul before rulers for the purpose of testifying of Jesus Christ. And so now here he's gonna go to Claudius Lysias and present Jesus Christ before him. In verse thirty-one. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antip- Antipatris. The next day, they left. They left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they'd come to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked the province. He asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And Paul spends what's estimated here, two years in prison at a very beautiful spot. If you have a chance to go to Israel, you can go to the ruins in Caesarea. And Herod built an impressive place here right on the Mediterranean Sea. And Paul was enjoying a nice view here for this two-year period where he's under God's protection and God's provision. And we're gonna pause here tonight and just seek to bring an application to our hearts and into our lives. And when you examine people in Scripture that are going through difficulty and challenge you'll find that one confusion does come in that doubt does come in and it's encounters with the Lord that provide encouragement it's Christ ministering to us in the midst of those seasons and speaking to our hearts what we need to know and what we need to to hear and I want to read briefly to you Elijah's experience with this as well You don't have to turn there. But Elijah, he goes to Mount Carmel and he calls out to Israel and he declares against the false prophets and there's a great victory. But then comes great discouragement in Elijah's life. Comes Elijah's own dark night with his soul. I'm not gonna comment a lot on it. I'm gonna read it to you. You'll pick up and you'll hear his encounter with God in the midst of this challenge. And Ahab told Jezebel and Elijah what Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Do you think you would call that the dark night of the soul? Probably. And when he saw that he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. So he had the courage to stand up against 400 prophets of Baal, but Jezebel has rung his bell, if you would, and now he's fearful, and he's running for his life. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat underneath a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my fathers. Notice that he felt like dying, but he didn't take that into his own hands. He lifts that up to the Lord and says, God, I want to die, but he doesn't consider or think about ending his, his own life. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals, a jar of water, so he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said arise and eat because the journey is too great for you To do this journey we've got to have God's provision It's too great for us So he rose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb the mountain of God That's quite a big mac that's quite a meal 40 days and 40 nights without having to have another meal. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Do you get the picture of Elijah? He's doing the toddler thing where he's putting his fingers in his ears and he's saying, God, I'm not listening to you. I have one message for you, God. I want to die. That's my message. So let me die. I'm going to sit here and pout. "'Till I die.'" Neener, 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 neener. And God pursues him and says, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' And he said, "'I've been very zealous "'for the Lord God of hosts "'because of the children of Israel, "'have forsaken your covenant, "'tore down your altars, "'and killed your prophets with the sword. "'I alone am left, "'and they seek to take away my life. "'Then the Lord said to him, "'Go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus.'" And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat over Abal molech you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. Just like God spoke to Paul, Paul, you've got a Rome. He speaks to Elijah and said, there's an Elisha. There's an Elisha. There's the next leader that's there for you to appoint. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Aziel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I've reserved seven thousand in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the great Elijah. Gave his resignation to God, he said, "I'm done. I'm tired of this." I'm not following this path anymore. Runs away as far as he can. I'm ready to die. And the still small, small voice of God. It's not in an earthquake. You're praying for an earthquake tonight. I wish there was some earthquake that would change my situation. No, God's voice is not in the earthquake. It's not in the fireworks. It's not in a bunch of emotion. It's not in a big show. It's in the voice of God. It's hearing his voice. There's nothing that can compare to it. We have a chance as we end this service tonight to come and spend time with Jesus. Jesus said that he was the bread of life, the bread of life. And in order to eat physical bread, it's got to be broken. You can't take a full loaf or even one piece and stuff it into your mouth. And even if you were able to stuff the whole loaf into your mouth, you would still have to chew it in order to digest it. And Jesus, in order to satisfy our souls, he was broken on the cross. And that's what we remember tonight. We remember his broken body. And if you're not sure if he stands with you in your dark night of the soul, look to the cross. Because he's saying to us, I'm the bread of life. I was broken for you so that you could be made whole, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have life. And as we come to hear the word, We also come to encounter the word Jesus Christ. Remember what he's done. Take communion, pour out your heart to him. God, I need to hear your voice. God, would you speak to me? I need to encounter you. Let's pray together.